BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Well, we got to get down to business. This Ben Jarofsky Show, Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the Chicago Reader and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Well, this time on the Ben Jarofsky Show, as I speak, it's Friday, December 18th, 2020. Of course, it's the podcast. You could be listening to it anytime. I'll now read to you the headline that's in my newspaper that was delivered, home delivered this day, December 18th, 2020. But because of the conversation I'm about to have, I'm going to flip the paper over. I'm going to flip my beloved bright one, my beloved Chicago Sun-Times over. I'm going to read the headline on the sports section. And the headline on the sports section, full page headline is, quote, brand stand. (laughs) Brand stand, despite changes in Major League Baseball and National Football League, Blackhawks remain committed to their name and logo. And this headline is apropos to the conversation I'll be having with my distinguished guests. And as I ask all distinguished guests on bonus segments to do, distinguished guests, please introduce yourself. Oh, hey, Dave Zirin here. How you doing? Dave Zirin. Yeah, just Dave Zirin. Well, <laughs> that's it. Resume. I mean, it's like the joke is like, you know, I'm not only going to give you my rank and my serial number and nothing more. Dave Zirin is an exceedingly talented uh, journalist, uh, writer, podcaster, writes for the nation. He uh, combines lefty politics near and dear to my heart uh, with a passion for sports. And I just before we get started, Dave, I want to give a shout out to the great Joan Chandler, uh, listener of this show, good f- friend of the show. She's also a good friend of Dave's show. And she was the one who brokered this deal, so to speak. She's telling me, Ben, you have to have Dave on your, your podcast. And one thing led to another. Here we are. All right, uh, Dave Zirin. Uh, let's start with like, this is sort of like the end of the year, uh, the year of sports, the year that was Oh, gosh, the pandemic just pretty much uh, decimated everything, uh, particularly my beloved Bulls basketball season. Of course, I can't blame the pandemic uh, totally on the Bulls. Uh, But uh, just general thoughts about the year that is concluding uh, with sports. uh, Did the sports try too hard to continue, in your humble opinion, in the middle of the pandemic? Well, I always start. And trying to answer that question with this quote by uh, journalist Jane McManus, who wrote that sports should be considered the reward for having a functioning society. And we don't have a functioning society. We have a society that's sick, that's beset by pandemic and division. And I think the sports world reflected that because the sports world was barely functioning just the same way our world barely functioned in 2020. Um, I think we learned a lot this year about the world of sports. I mean, it didn't surprise some of us who've covered the economics of how sports works and the value system of modern sports. But I mean, we saw that, you know, when it comes to sports, the television money is what everybody bows in front of 
broadcasting dollars or what everybody bows in front of. And because of that, the games will go on no matter the cost to the athletes, no matter the experience of the fan, no matter the fact that according to a Marist poll, 47% of people watch less sports than they did before the pandemic started. I mean, none of that is really of concern to the minders of sports. What's of concern is that they put games on the television sets so they can reap those dollars. And because that's a necessity, a precondition for their survival. I mean, I get it. It's not just naked greed. It's about them keeping the boat afloat, but it just shows you that the value system starts with the dollar and ends with the dollar. And, you know, if you have a situation like at, uh, I believe it's the university of Houston that announced that every single athlete on the basketball team has COVID uh, it was announced just the other day. I mean, th- these are situations that they're willing, more than willing, to abide um, if it means keeping the trains running on time. Dave, if you were the uh, commissioner of the NBA, would you have had uh, the basketball season, the bubble season, or would you have just not had a season at all? See, I've been asked that before, and I got to say, if I'm the commissioner, of course I'm doing it because uh, it, <laughs> it, it proved right to do from a commissioner perspective uh, because they were, they actually showed that the only real way that you can have sports in the context of a viral pandemic uh, is to have this kind of hermetically sealed bubble where everybody goes and nobody gets to leave and nobody gets to see their family. And, uh, and, you know, they play in front of these virtual fans and we get at least a partial bit of our sports fix. They get their taste of the broadcasting money. And, uh, and you're able to say that you had a legitimate season. LeBron James is able to say he has another championship. Uh, Giannis Antetokounmpo is able to say he has a second straight MVP and you're able to keep the narrative of sports alive. Same with the WNBA. You get to spin a narrative about the Seattle storm and, uh, Brianna Stewart leading that team. And, and you, you get to have your stories. So from a commissioner's perspective, absolutely right thing to do all the way. Now, if I'm a player, I don't know if I do it. Um, And, you know, there was, of course, a big debate in the NBA about this very question, this idea that if we go and play, we're somehow taking attention away from the social justice and anti-racist protests that were happening after the police killing of George Floyd. That was the big debate among players in the NBA. And I think for a lot of those players, uh, they feel now that they're out on the other side of it that, yeah, it wasn't the best use of time or energy or resources given what was happening in the country. Yeah, the NBA, as a result of so much of the protests of the players, has become itself uh, like a divisive sport. And I see this all the time uh, when I look at MAGA comments about uh, the NBA. Talk about this, Dave. Like the NBA somehow or other is now like anti-Trump. And so MAGA, Trump says, he's, he pounds his chest and he says, the ratings are down because I've come out against the NBA. He's really saying that's how much power I have. Uh, what's your take yeah. on all this? Well, and also, I mean, this is a kind of tried and too true trait of fascism is like by some sort of transference, his followers all of a sudden feel powerful as well as they feel the refracted glow of this great man. Of course, Donald Trump's a total fraud. Uh, you know, makes the wizard and the wizard of Oz look like, uh, you know, David Rockefeller. I mean, 
it, there, there's not a lot of there there when it comes to Donald Trump. Uh, and you know, so that's why, you know, first of all, the argument in and of itself falls out and falls down on its face. It's like, yes, NBA ratings were down. Yes. Trump attacked him, attacked the NBA, but then to be like, and therefore by the transitive property, NBA ratings are down because Trump attacked them. I mean, that, that, that that's analysis that uh, doesn't hold up. I mean, because ratings were down dramatically in sports like golf and NASCAR. I mean, th- these are hardly sports where, you know, people were, uh, you know, calling for the downfall of Donald Trump. So if you're able to, to say and project and not tell the truth, which is that ratings were down, not just in basketball, but across all of sports because the pandemic had so mangled our lives that watching sports wasn't really on the top of people's agenda. I mean, that's what the polls actually tell when, when you dig into polls about that 47% number, like why people are watching uh, fewer sports, it all goes down to the pandemic, but that's not a story that Trump was trying to sell. He'd rather sell the story about how he and all his, uh, you know, powerful whiteness was able to tell this major overwhelmingly black league, you know, that it needed to know its place if it wanted to have a place on the pop, pop cultural landscape. Yeah. Uh, By the way, he made the same claim for what it's worth about his impact on the NFL. This is before the pandemic when Colin Kaepernick uh, was taking his knee, but he was still being allowed to play in the in the NFL. Uh, Donald Trump made the same claim uh, that he was the reason the uh, ratings fall. So this is. I guess this is a basic one on one of Donald Trump claims. I think a psychiatrist would call grandiosity. And um, not to shock anyone, but I do think he suffers from that, among many other psychological ailments, uh, in addition to just the general low shoddiness of character. Uh, Dave, I I obsessively followed the bubble. It got me through. Um, I want to thank the NBA players for sacrificing so much for me. Just thank you very much. Uh, It got me through good with like June and July and into August. Uh, oh my God, beyond that, it was in only in October. I've lost track of time. Yeah. So I, obs- I obsessively uh, watched the bubble and I saw there was just like this, this kind of dance that they were doing. And I'd like to love to get your thoughts on this, where they would have Black Lives Matter as a logo uh, painted on the floor. Uh, the, the coaches were wearing buttons in many cases, except for some reason. I think it was the coach of Denver did not wear. I was wondering, why isn't he wearing a button? Uh, was, what's this, this guy's problem? Is he a secret Trump supporter? Uh, the players had logos that, you know, there was like eight logos. You could pick one or the other. Uh, so there was this attempt to be politically relevant while, uh, you know, they were selling us on this, this uh, mass spectator sport. I, I had some issues. With, just your thoughts on how they, they played the politics with the games. Go ahead. I mean, I I thought it was, you know, on the one hand, I got it. You know, it was a concession to the players to have all of that Black Lives Matter branding um, on the court because the players, like we were talking about earlier, there was a real split among players about whether or not to actually go back and play. And so as a way to sate the player that was thirsty or hungry for some sort of of social justice reckoning after the police murder of George Floyd, it was, okay. you know, we'll have Black Lives Matter on the court. We'll have these slogans on the back of our jerseys and then we'll somehow meld social justice and commerce. Um, Unfortunately, you know, when social justice and commerce come together, that's called branding. You know, and that's called the commodification of dissent. That's less kind ways to put it. 
And I think that's what you know we saw. We saw the commodification of dissent as a part of the bubble, a bubble which I consumed and enjoyed and got me through the same months that uh, got you through as well. Um, and you know, so I, you know, when I've been writing about it, I've been calling it woke marketing or woke capitalism. Just, just it, it's a way to try to appeal to that young generation of fans, which is you know more diverse as a generation and less tolerant of intolerance. I mean, these are the same fans who were marching in the streets uh, during the summer months. So the NBA, you know, they're not stupid. They want to appeal to them as all sports do. There's like this um, incredible competition right now among all sports leagues to not become irrelevant in the age of TikTok to young consumers and to actually try to project itself as mattering when they have so many other things in their lives that attract their attention. I see that with my own kids times a thousand. Um, And you know, so, so, you know, that's generally my feelings about it is that, you know, like, I think it was, it came out of this desire uh, for players to want to be able to sort of have their cake and eat it too. And it became something that the NBA used cannily as a way of projecting itself. Now, all that being said, I think, you know, this is, I think is the most important sports story of the year is that, um, something came out of that, which I think, you know, Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner did not expect when the players went on strike in August, starting with the Milwaukee Bucks um, in protest of the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. So that, you know, that was very significant. So that came out of it, which I think isn't nothing. Um, But on the whole, it was what it was. Uh, Dave, what do you make of the, the MAGA uh, folks uh, in sport, including I've seen actually right wing sports writers uh, write this, that the the NBA players are phonies and frauds because while they'll protest uh, police brutality uh, in the United States, they won't stand uh, with the dissidents uh, in China uh, who are demanding freedom. And uh, what's sort of your uh, response uh, yeah, when you I hear mean, that? response is that's usually, you know, said by people who want them to shut up about racism at home. So uh, as, as a tool, as a way to get them to shut up about talking about racism and police brutality at home, they say, what about China? It's like the same people who say, what about Chicago? When they, people talk about gun violence or police violence and say, well, what about Chicago? What about, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's what, what do they call that? Concern trolling. I mean, a lot of these, I, I thought it was hilarious, although depressing, like how many of the Republicans, the same Republicans who made such hay going after the NBA players for not being leading the fight against, you know, for the rights of the, you know, Igor Muslims and uh, speaking out for dissident rights in China. I mean, these same Republican senators aren't doing jack shit is, you know, the plight of, of, of the Muslims in China is, gets absolutely ignored. I mean, so there, there's a great, you know, people obviously who have by an exponential level, far more power than NBA players to actually impact our policy on China um, are the same people not doing jack shit. So, I mean, I thought it was utter concern trolling bullshit. I mean, all that being said, would it be great if an NBA player, you know, linked the struggle at home with the struggle abroad, said something about China? Sure it would. But I mean, I, mean, I think it's, it's also wrong for people who expect NBA players to be like, you know, Malcolm X and high tops. I mean, these are athletes. Uh, they're speaking about issues that they, that they're familiar with, that they know about, that they're confident to speak about, um, you know, a- expecting more from them is so interesting, especially when that critique comes from a Senator, because it's like, that's who we should be expecting more from. And the people we actually elect. I mean, not not the people who play sports. I mean, this is, 
I, I think to me, just a tactic to get them to, to, as you know, Laura Ingram says, shut up and dribble, shut up and dribble. Yeah, no, I just saw this in an article and I apologize for not knowing the guy's name. He may be a friend of yours. Uh, uh, his, he was a right winger, uh, sports columnist, I think for the New York post. Uh, I think his first name was Phil, and I humbly oh, apologize. Nick. Yeah, that guy. I'm reading oh, his column, and I'm like, that's spore that that mole on the buttocks of my profession, Phil Mushnick. I mean, let me tell you something. I, I grew up in New York City. I was reading his racism when I was 10 years old, growing up in New York. He has not quit he has been beating that gong for uh for black athletes to know their role and know their place from the time i was you know prepubescent so yeah phil mushnick he's gonna say what he's gonna say uh he's made a nice living by by doing what he does i mean i'm actually frankly more concerned with like this new generation of you know that there might they might as well be like proud boy sports writers uh, on Twitter than, than I am a Phil Mushnick who's, you know, going the way of the dodo bird. Wait, what do you mean by proud boy uh, sports writers on Twitter? Well, not, I'm not going to name names on this, but there is this young generation of sports writers who feel like their shtick is how do I take sports and turn it into as much of a right wing vessel as possible? Not in the way that uh, it's been done in the past, but like in a new kind of way where, you know, they're holding up and lauding um, right-wing athletes as if they're freedom fighters and doing whatever they can to discredit the words, actions, ideas of any athlete who dares do anything to step outside of the box. I'm uh, proudly racist, homophobic, sexist, all that. I'm trying to think of any current uh, athletes who are openly right-wing. See, I don't, I don't follow only sports. I really follow are basketball, football, and baseball. I don't obsessively follow any other sports. So you got to help me here, Dave, who are the right wing athletes, the openly right wing athletes? Well, I mean, they're, they're, like you said, few and far between, at least those willing to let that MAGA freak flag fly. <laughs> but they're, def- they're definitely there. I mean, for, ben, Trump's buddy, Ben Roethlisberger uh, in the NFL, to NBA player Gordon Hayward. I mean, I mean, these uh, there's an NFL, another NFL player who um, like players were wearing the names of people who'd been killed by police. And he said, no, I'm going to wear, um, you know, police officer who was killed by a black person. I'm going to wear a decal with their name on it. And obviously, you know, doing that in that context is like extremely provocative. And, uh, his name's Tyler Eifert. I mean, it's so, you know, you, you can, you can sort of sift through the, the, the weeds, if you will, and, and, and find your right wing players. And my take on this has always been the same. It's like, I'm for players having the freedom to speak out no matter what their politics, like I'm for ending the shut up and dribble mentality. I'm for, you know, like treating athletes like citizens and not saying they only have the right to speak if they're selling us a sports drink or something of that nature. So, you know, so I, that's, that's pretty much where I fall on that. <laughs> Actually, Dave, I'm going to have to uh, disagree with you. After I heard what Brian Urlacher's uh, views uh, were when it came uh, to um, the, the gentleman who shot uh, the well, two people yeah. in the, Kenosha. I was more of the, uh, you know, Brian, shut up and dribble, uh, Elk. I have to tell you that. Uh, no, I get you know, I mean, like, I mean, you know, freedom of, of speech, of course, you know, does not mean uh, freedom from criticism. 
So you know, if Brian Urlacher wants to make himself a, an absolute horse's ass and defend the <laughs> go right ahead. Yeah. But then, like, the way, I, like you know, like like you need a fainting couch if someone dares criticize you for it. Like, how dare you tell Brian Urlacher he doesn't have the right to his opinion? It's like, yeah. no, he's got the right to his opinion. I got to tell you, by the way, I did not know that Gordon Hayward was a right winger. Oh, uh, basketball. Yeah. I did not know that. Uh, he's expressed this uh, from time to time, his opinions. Yeah, I mean, it's subtle. You got to read the tea leaves. It's not like he's out there, uh, you know, burning signs in front of black churches in D.C. like we saw last weekend. But, uh, you know, he's uh, got sorry, that's still on my mind. It's where I live. And uh, but but, you know, he's, he's expressed his views. And, yeah, it's if that's his views. More power to him. Good for you. But that doesn't mean people don't get to argue with you, though, as well. And if you happen to play in a sport that's built on, you know, black labor, don't be surprised if your teammates look at you a little bit side eyed either. Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Dave, you mentioned you uh, grew up in New York and that you now live in Washington. So let's uh, yeah. just take a deep dive in your psyche a little bit. I think this is as good a uh, time as any uh, for you as an older uh, New York fan, New York Knicks fan, as an old time New York fan, I know you're now a Wizard fan, uh, 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 to talk about uh, the insane owner of the New York Knicks. And please explain to me how uh, he is able, uh, he's able to hold on to that team for all these years uh, in perhaps the most important market uh, that the NBA has <laughs> no consequences to his. They had, he had the great Charles Oakley hauled out oh. of Madison square garden in handcuffs, Dave. And he's still yeah. the owner of the, of the Knicks. Go ahead. Please explain that to me. Funny is a, a buddy of mine who I went to college with was actually there with Charles Oakley that night. And he, he brought him to the arena as his guest. And then the melee ensued where the owner of the Knicks, who you mentioned, his name is James Dolan. Uh, James Dolan would start with him. I mean, he's how does someone this incompetent this mediocre come to own the new york knicks franchise well it's because his father did you know he made his money the old-fashioned way he inherited it uh his father was bruce dolan uh they, they bought the team some what god i'm get losing track of time some 20 25 years ago and you know james dolan he was basically gifted it by his father i mean you know some people get gifted the family business some people get gifted the family car Hey, a lot of us get gifted the family bills. Yeah. But what James Dolan got gifted was, you know, this this franchise, which should be a crown jewel of the NBA. I mean, it's the number one media market. Uh, basketball is so much the city game. Um, the, the legacy and history of what basketball in New York is from, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to Kenny Anderson on through uh, is, is a beautiful thing. And my goodness, read, people should read The City Game by Pete Axtell about New York and basketball or Heaven is a Playground. I mean, by Chicago's own Rick Talander. I mean, Talander. Um, but it, it's it's such good writing and such great, you know, it's, it spawns so much richness for the sport. Yet this guy, James Dolan, I mean, James Dolan, you know, his the thing he's been most effective at in his life is getting DUIs. And he's uh, he's got his his own personal rock band that he fronts. I mean, this guy, I mean, I should look it up right now, but I think he's like 60 years old or something. And he still acts like a wayward teenager. And he's run this team into the absolute ground. And there are a lot of folks, you know, it's like I, I talk to NBA players and, you know, I just interviewed uh, uh, 
uh, Mario Ellie and Chucky Brown from, from the nineties rockets. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's, what's, what's so interesting talking to them is like, they'll, they'll tell you that, sorry, I'm looking at, yeah, yeah. He's 65 years old. Mm-hmm. That's how old, uh, uh, James is, and the, the teenager who runs the team. And he has his music group is called JD and the straight shot. Um, his blues rock band. God. <laughs> and what, what Mario Ellie and Chucky Brown said, and what so many NBA players have is they said that it's underrated how much a successful franchise starts from the top is that you have to have some form of franchise ownership, which is legitimate and serious that other players, AKA free agents take seriously mm-hmm. and want to play for that team because of how it's run from the top down. And, you know, that surprised me a little bit because everybody talks about the NBA and player power and don't you want to play with other great players? And, you know, that, of course, is true. But at the same time, where those great players gravitate, who people want to play with, it really does start at the top. And that's why the Knicks can't get decent free agents. That's why. Uh, they, they, I mean, they're this guy, James Dolan, he's too impatient for a legitimate rebuild. So they can't build through the draft either. So they end up getting mediocre injury prone free agents who tend to not be the recipe for a winning club. So it's been, it's been depressing for sure. Uh, a sort of helpless, hopeless, joyless experience. And, you know, I felt pretty strongly about the fact that, you know, since I was living now in DC in the DC area and I had kids of my own that, you know, it was somehow legal for me by the <laughs> international criminal court that <laughs> sports fandom that I was that I'd put in my time. I <laughs> and it's not like I was gravitating to the Lakers or anything. Like I was, you know, the Washington Wizards are hardly the twenty-seven Yankees, but I just needed somebody something to root for that wasn't the blue and orange of the New York Knicks. I I, I'm, I can understand. I can tell you this. I, uh, I've been a Bears fan, Chicago Bears fan forever. I'm through with them. And I get your thoughts on this. I believe the Chicago Bears, my beloved Chicago Bears that I've rooted for since the 60s, are, to put it mildly, I ask guests about this all the time in the show, to put it mildly, prejudiced when it comes to black people playing quarterback. And they will take any white, no offense, Dave, they'll take you. Yeah. Over Patrick Mahomes, okay? Oh, the Zyron. You should see the kid's arm. He's unbelievable. Yeah. Have Moxie. yeah, smart. Oh, my God. He reads a defense like no one. So I would believe, I think they're the most racist organization when it comes to black quarterback. It, Dave, it's 2020. You know what I mean? It's not like 1972 or something like that. I, so I'm through with them. So I'm with you. But I can't. Go root for another team. I cannot do what you did. You, you follow what I'm saying? I do. Um, of course, you've stayed in Chicago. So yes. you know, that made the roots you know, sink in a little deeper. I'm sure if I was in New York, it would be a lot harder for me to disengage. And I certainly wouldn't have gone to the Wizards, for goodness sakes. I just think, you know, you move yourself, you're able to do it. And I get your frustration about the Bears. Believe me. And there's a guy named uh, Jack Silverstein. Uh, yeah, Jack. Yeah, no Jack. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did some terrific threads on um, 
uh, on Twitter about the history of the bears and racist hiring and their quarterbacks. That was a total education to me because they, they, they kind of skate under that. Like there are teams that have this historic reputation uh, around racism and, and, you know, people don't usually, you know, front load the bears when they have that discussion. Maybe it's the memory of Walter Payton. Maybe it's because Chicago itself is such a diverse city, but they, you know, but you're absolutely right. And I'm sorry, but you know, Mitchell Trubisky over not Patrick Mahomes, but Deshaun Watson. I mean, this, you know, that at some point you got to just shake your head and say, you know, like Deshaun Watson was accepted in South Carolina for goodness sakes for Clemson. It's like if South Carolina can somehow, somehow um, absorb fandom for a black quarterback. I think the bears could do that as well. By the way, not just that, that not just that, but let's one more point before I leave the bears, they traded up to get Trubisky. Okay. They traded up to get Trubisky. And the year before they took a guy named Mike Lennon over Colin Kaepernick and they paid him $18 million to be the through with the bears, Dave through with the bears. I got you. I understand. And, and they tend to lose in heartbreaking fashion as well, which doesn't isn't usually very fun. All right. Now, uh, I got to ask you this. You were originally a New York Knicks fan. And so you're on a, sh- a show that's uh, listened to by a lot of Chicago Bulls fans. So I think the time has come for Dave Zyra to con- confess and make this concession that the 1994 Eastern Conference showdown between my beloved Bulls and the Knicks was, in fact, awarded, awarded, ladies and gentlemen, unfairly by a certain referee named Hugh Hollins to the New York Knicks. Will you make that? Will you finally? Come on, Dave. It's been 30 years for crying out loud. Admit you did not deserve to win that uh, series in 1994. Go. I don't know. I think, you know, he got his hand on the arm every time he <laughs> the shot. And, you know, Hubert Davis, God bless him, you know, just trying to play his game, not asking uh, the, the, the irony of this whole thing is that, obviously, I could put myself back where I was when I watched that series. I mean, that – uh, Nick's team was not very likable. They were, you know, they were playing hockey, basically. Uh, they might as well have been, you know, checking players against the board <laughs> and trying to slice them open with skates. Yeah. That Bulls team was actually so enjoyable. Yes. I mean, if for because, you know, Jordan gone, they, they're proving themselves on their own. Uh, Pippen playing like an MVP. Kukoc being Kukoc. Yeah. For the only time in his career really being Ku coach. I mean, that that was a lot of fun to watch that team. Of course, I I, I that made me just dislike them all the more. <laughs> like how dare you be so lovable. Yeah. Yeah, without Jordan. By the way, are your thoughts on the last dance and Michael Jeffrey Jordan? Uh that also that helped me get through the early, early phases of the pandemic, obsessively watching that show, obsessively talking about it. I told you it was we did a six part series on it, talking to various people uh connected to uh, the movie or to basketball. Sure. What was your thoughts about the movie and what's your thoughts about Michael Jeffrey Jordan and his legacy in the NBA? Well, it's interesting. I mean, that the movie, I feel like the the you just referenced it. I think the the headline for that movie movie is that it was like the last gasp of the monoculture uh, due to the pandemic. I mean, maybe the, the last thing that it felt like a collective national discussion, other than things like the elections, but I'm talking about like pop culture. I mean, it felt like it was something we were all watching, all discussing, and that was such a welcome break from the the, the, the horrors of, of the moment, you know, so especially all the uncertainty and newness of the pandemic. So, 
on that respect, I mean, it was a total success. Um, I thought that the film was really flawed in, in the way it, I felt like, uh, you know, it gave Jordan and his group last cut. And I felt like the way it lionized some of the bullying of Michael Jordan made me really uncomfortable. And it made me uncomfortable the way they went after Jerry Krause without mentioning that Krause had died. Like they, they had like several, I mean, eventually they mentioned Krause dying, but it took like several go arounds of blasting this guy who couldn't really defend himself. So that bugged me to no end. And I, I wrote my little nitpicky criticisms, but part of what was so fun about it was that you could write these nitpicky yeah. criticisms. Um, you know, it gave us something to write about and talk about during a very rough time. So I want to like thank the filmmakers for giving me something to criticize. Um, but to take it to Michael Jeffrey Jordan, I mean, you know, it's like I grew up watching him. I mean, it's from, from North Carolina on, I was a little kid watching him in the, in those uniforms. I mean, what can you say except for those of us who grew up watching him? It's interesting. Cause I feel like we're less likely to call him the goat, the greatest of all time, but we do that because we saw the human side of him in a way that, you know, young people watching him on like, you know, TikTok and YouTube clips don't really, didn't really get to see like the games where he had to shoot the ball like 35, 40 times just <laughs> in it. And he yeah. hit 13 of those shots, but he would go 17 for 17 from the line, look exhausted afterwards and will his team for to victory. He had a lot of games like that. Yeah. They weren't pretty. Yeah. But he was going to do, you know, but, but he wasn't a God, you know, players have off nights and, you know, at best they hit half their shots. And, you know, so I think he was able to skate under the kind of criticism that I don't think LeBron James, I mean, LeBron James gets so much criticism. I feel like whenever he's not, whenever he's something less than perfect. And I think it aided Jordan that he didn't have to, you know, play during that social media atmosphere. And Jordan has said himself, like due to his, some of his private life uh, enjoyments has said that he didn't think he could survive playing in this era. So I think that always needs to be factored in, but you know, Michael Jordan, you know, the famous quote, and I'm sure you know it, you know, said by Scott Turow, you know, that Michael Jordan at his height, he's better at what he does than any of us are at what we do mm. is accurate do you uh are you do you say that in regards to uh, lebron james where do you stand on that one michael jordan versus lebron james you know that's so tough because i mean lebron james is like bo jackson to me bo jackson with a supercomputer for a brain like you've got somebody who's who at his best is you know stronger faster and then smarter than other people on the court. Jordan, I mean, Jordan was able to like create poetry on the court. It was almost like Jordan was translating basketball into a different kind of art and culture. While LeBron James is a basketball player, first and foremost, and an athlete, first and foremost. I mean, and that's, I guess, I think the other thing that's hard to explain to people who didn't actually watch Jordan in his prime is that he was, he was, actually creating a different kind of language on the court. And so as much as I appreciate LeBron and as much as I think LeBron is, is unbelievable on almost every conceivable level, I I really do think Jordan was doing something that, you know, you can barely even call basketball that it was beyond basketball. And it it just, it, it allowed us to see the future. 
Well put. And this is, uh, I know it's not easy for you to say this. This is a man who's still, yeah, I talk about Hugh Holland's call in 1994. Poor Davis still hasn't got over the 1990, no, 1992. You had us. Yeah, we, yeah. you had us. You let us off the ropes. That's really uh, hard, that one, because that was the one where we had Xavier McDaniel. Yes. And he could get under Jordan's skin like few others. And, uh, you know, and then we and then we dumped Xavier McKinney. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were just like, yeah, through that, we'll get this guy, Charles Smith. Yeah. He gets blocked 118 times. <laughs> I think they're still blocking his shot out of that basket. As we speak. And, and you know, these are all games I was watching live. So I'm like, the pain is acute when I remember them. And, and also there was something acutely painful about watching – younger America, including my own kid, like relive the most painful moments of my childhood. Oh yeah. yeah because in the, uh, the last dance, they did not do uh, justice, by the way, I have to say this uh, with, look, we can all criticize the last dance, but they completely cut out. I don't know if they were completely, but they largely cut out Craig Hodges. Oh yeah. Yeah. And sure. I said, excusable, you know, I just, that's from where I'm coming from. I wrote the intro to Craig's book, which is a terrific book. Uh, it's so good called long shot. And I, I was so blessed to be able to write the introduction for it. Craig Hodges is top of the line for me. And you know, the, the thing that really bothered me about taking out of Craig Hodges is that, you know, they didn't talk to him. They didn't ask to speak to Craig. I interviewed Craig after it came out. They didn't ask to speak to him. He could have had such a great point of view to give about the Jordan years, about the rise of Nike's influence on the sport. I mean, he has so much to say about that. And he's so frigging smart. And it would have brought so much flavor to the series. And I, and I said this to Craig. I was like, if you watch The Last Dance closely, when they show the footage of like young Horace Grant and young Scottie Pippen suffering on the court because they were so inexperienced their rookie years, you see on the footage who's the first person who runs up to them and is patting them on the back and talking in their ear. It's Craig Hodges. Yeah. And like the idea that you wouldn't go to him when he's right there on the screen, number 14, giving love to these future great players. I mean, I just thought it was unconscionable. Honestly. Well, I, my guess is that uh, Michael Jordan, that was his oh, yeah. decision, but uh, I don't know that for a fact. That would be my guess, okay? Oh, yeah. uh, all right, uh, so we'll close with the a reference that I made at the outset, and I this is something that'll turn your mind. Get your thoughts on this. Again, I'm speaking from Chicago and the hockey team in Chicago, and I have to start by saying, Dave, I, I haven't followed hockey since – Bobby Hall left Chicago. I never got over that. And I said, you know what? I don't need to spend any more time watching this sport. Uh, but they're still called the Blackhawks. And they're determined to re remain the Blackhawks, despite the fact that the team out of Washington, that I won't mention, dropped its name. And the Cleveland Indians are getting ready to drop their name. Your thoughts on the Blackhawks clinging to the name the Blackhawks? Clinging is the right word because this is going to go the way of the, of the 19th century very soon. Look, the Washington football team name and their owner, Dan Snyder, you know, the, the, he said, you know, the name will never change. You could put that all in caps. You know, he swore to that. 
and the accumulated pressures of both sponsors and the trying to appeal to a young generation that really just doesn't have patience for mascotry and minstrelsy and all the rest of it, it caught up with them. And I think it's going to catch up to the Kansas City Chiefs. I think it's going to catch up to the Chicago Blackhawks. I mean, there's too much evidence on the side of organizations like uh, the National Council of the American Indian, of the there's uh, a National Congress, I'm sorry, the American Indian, um, all the various tribal councils that have voted on this. And I mean, people can go to, uh, I believe it's changethemascot.org if you want to see like the full list. I mean, it's, it's a staggering list of governing bodies of, of uh, Native Americans that are just like, yeah, the, the mascotting has to end. Uh, and the American Psychiatric Association, which is they've come out with their studies about how mascotting harms kids. And so it's like how long the Blackhawks, how long the Chiefs want to be belligerent in the face of that is really the only question going forward. And people who think they're just going to be able to hold out indefinitely aren't reading the tea leaves and don't see which way the wind is blowing. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that one. Uh, but they are insisting uh, that they never Daniel change. I insisting. I had a front row seat for it. <laughs> what? Yes, that's correct. Uh, by the, all right, we'll close with this final uh, observation from you. I am, of course, predicting, as I do every year, that my beloved Chicago Bulls will be NBA champions at the end of this ah. season. Well, <laughs> beyond where I was. <laughs> every year I make that prediction. Uh, Dave, you should know it's, uh, yep, this is the year. They're going to win it again. Uh, so uh, you probably a little more objective when it comes to uh, the Chicago Bulls and how they're going to do this year. Give uh, our uh, my audience a sense of what you expect from the Chicago uh, Bulls. I ex- I I think that oh god, this is going to get me um, <laughs> uh, deported to ESPN Hot Take Island to use this word, but I think people should feel bullish about the Bulls. God, wow, myself right now. Um, for the first time in a long time, um, you you have a professional head coach for the first time in a while uh, in Billy Donovan. That's, that's going to be worth about 10 wins, just having Billy Donovan on the sideline. And this rookie that you got, Patrick Williams, who I was basically like, uh, I barely knew who he was in college. He, um, except people always use the word potential around his name, he's looked terrific. Yeah. And so there, there are reasons to actually be excited in Chicago. And, you know, Kobe White never really got his full chance to, show what he could do. I think he's an incredible talent um, in the backcourt. So there, there are reasons to actually be excited in Chicago, like like actual youth who you can build around and do things, and, and a coach in Billy Donovan, who I think is going to be there for a while. And it's it's like the exact opposite of the Knicks, who are interestingly going to be coached by Tom Thibodeau, somebody mm-hmm. you all know well. So we'll be watching for the Knicks' various uh, joints and uh, hamstrings to pop and pull over the next year. <laughs> If he start, um, as he benches our awesome young players and starts Julius Randle and plays him 48 minutes a night. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think in, in Bulls land that there's something to actually feel excited about. And this is the first time I would have said that in quite a few years. All right. Now, uh, I have an old friend uh, who, believe it or not, is a Washington Wizards uh, fan. And mm-hmm. every year 
we have a debate. Who will be better, the Bulls or the Wizards? Uh, his na- you may know him. His name is Kevin Blackstone. He's been a friend of mine since the early 80s. Uh, so Kevin will be listening to this. And so right now, weigh in. Who will be better in this season? My Chicago Bulls or Kevin Blackstone's beloved Washington Wizards? Kevin Blackstone, who is my neighbor, and I'm only saying this because he's my neighbor, uh, is absolutely correct to throw his lot in with the Washington Wizards. Russell Westbrook and Bradley Beal might be the best backcourt in the NBA this year. Uh, things are very exciting in Wizards land, and I'm excited for it. We have a player who's a, a Serbian-Israeli rookie named Denny Evdia, who it took till the middle of his second preseason game to miss a shot. And this kid is like Tony Kukoc with a wispy mustache. Uh, Should the Bulls have taken him over Patrick Williams? A lot of teams should have taken Denny of Dia, who let him pass. That let him pass, but I'm not sure the Bulls are one of those teams. I really think they hit pay dirt with this kid. Yeah, I'm with you on that. We will see, but I think several teams screwed up in in not taking Denny of Dia, who some people had as the number one player in the draft, and he dropped all the way to number nine. Um, but uh, I think as a Bulls fan, you should feel good about who you got. But I just think the Wizards, they have too much upper level talent that's between the ages of 26 and 32. That's Russell Westbrook, who just turned 32. And I think that that, I mean, Ke- Kevin Blackstone is in a good place. <laughs> okay. All right, Kevin. Uh, uh, I think he beat me last year, too. Uh, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to come on my show. I think I'm going to reach out to you on a regular basis. It's a lot of fun talking sports and politics with you. Oh, and, and here comes uh, Dennis rolling back in the picture. Hello. Yeah, well, Dennis. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen who can't see it, uh, Dr. D, during the interviews, is usually in the back room smoking a joint. No, just kidding. It's not what he's doing. All he's right. working Doing hard. my he's laundry. Yeah, he's doing his laundry. Uh, all right, Dave, you take care. Stay safe and sound, and we'll talk to you in the new year, all right? Call me whenever. Be well. All right. Take care. That's a great Dave's Aaron. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.